Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Fantastic, because we're continuing our series on the book of Daniel. And uh, the book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. And I've been inspired by the book written by Chris Hodges called The Daniel Dilemma. And uh, we have a number of copies of The Daniel Dilemma in our resource centre. And I would encourage every one of you to get a copy of this particular book. Because like the subtitle says, it's going to help you how to stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise. And if we sell out today of all the books we have in stock, we'll just get a whole heap more. So place an order because this is like a, a, a playbook. It's like a manual. It's like a guide of how to help you set yourself up for some wins so that you can indeed stand firm of which we need to, like never before, stand firm. But not just stand firm. We don't want to stand up and be heard for what we're just against. We want to also be known what we are for. So we want a people that know how to stand firm, but also love well in a culture of compromise. And we certainly live in a culture of compromise, but that is nothing new. Daniel was a young man that lived about two and a half thousand years ago. And his country in which he lived, his hometown, was invaded by Babylon, which was then headed up by King Nebuchadnezzar. And he came into Jerusalem, he besieged it, he torched the temple, and he took Israel's finest. He took Daniel and all the young men that were handsome, <laughs> well-built. Looking at some of these men right now, I mean, seriously, if King Nebuchadnezzar was here, JJ, you would be in trouble. He would just whip you up, take you away. Men that were smart and uh, quick thinkers and deep thinkers and able to hold good conversations. And they took the best of Israel and they took them back to Babylon where they were to be indoctrinated. Everyone say indoctrinated. Where they were to be indoctrinated with Babylonian culture and raised up to be the next generation of advisors and leaders of that particular nation. And so here's Daniel and his three friends and many other young Israelites found themselves in a foreign culture a culture that they were not used to, familiar with, and certainly didn't agree with or like. And the whole book of Daniel, the premise of the book of Daniel, really ultimately is how to live in a culture, but not be part of that culture. How to live in this world, but not be a part of this world. In actual fact, Jesus said in the book of John 17, verse 15, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, meaning the disciples. And if he, Jesus were here today in bodily form, He would say the same to us. Jesus' prayer is not that we would be taken out of this world. Think for a moment how many times you've prayed the prayer, God, get me out of this. I've had enough. Help. Are you with me? Uh, if, if we take the premise that Jesus is right and we have something to learn, probably 50% of all of our prayers need to change. Because Jesus said, I'm not praying for you to come out of this, but I'm praying that you might have strength and that you may be protected from the evil one, for they are not of the world, even as I am not of this world. The world for me summarises simply a certain way of thinking. It's a mentality. 
So Jesus is saying, I'm not praying that you would take them out of this worldly way of thinking, but that you would empower them and you protect them to absolutely have an impact on the world in which they live. In other words, you can be a thermostat or a thermometer. A thermometer just tells you what the temperature is. And we don't want to be people that just tell people how bad the world is. We want to be a thermostat that regulates the temperature, that changes the temperature. If it's too hot, we want to bring it down. We want to be able to change the culture in which we live. And Daniel was a young man that was not only placed in a culture, but he was unaffected by it. But not only was he unaffected by the culture, he actually had an impact on the culture in which he lived. And I believe that is what God would want for each and every one of us, to be not influenced by the culture, but to have an impact on the culture in which we live today. You see, Babylon is not just a locality, it's a mentality. I want you to get this. Babylon is not just a locality, it's also a mentality. It's a demonically inspired way of thinking. If you go back to the second book, sorry, the first book in the Bible, second chapter, where the devil shows up, the first thing he does, he does one of uh, two things. The first thing he does, he tries to lower God. He says to Adam and Eve in the garden, did God really say? And the second thing he does is elevate self, elevate people. He says, no, that's not true. God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he knows that you will be like God. And so what the promise of the enemy is, is to lower God and elevate you. Elevate people and to lower God. And in so doing, what he's saying is that I, the devil, am all about you. God is all about himself. And he puts this lie and this certain way of thinking that has shaped culture from then right through to now. And that is the culture in which we live, one that elevates self. If ever we lived in a self-adoring culture, it's now. And I've got a mobile phone, I'm sure you do. And we live in a self-obsessed, selfie culture. And so we're always on the phone. I mean, you can be walking down the mall and people are just looking into their phones and, and looking at them self. And even if there's a group photo with other people in it, have you ever seen a photo with other people in it? What's the first thing you do? You get the photo and you zoom in on it and you only look at one person and it's you. Whether it's a good photo or not depends on how you look in the photo. Am I I talking to the right people? Talk about a selfie-obsessed world in which we live. And so there could be one of the whole family, but someone's cut out the family. But if you look good, you're like, man, that's a great photo. So I could stand there with BJ and Mitch and Geordie and Mum and, and we've got a snap. So, ah, oh, wow, look, that's a great photo of me. And at one, two, three, four, don't we have five? Yeah, BJ's not in the photo, but gee, it's, too, it's too good one of me not to post. And so we post it and have hashtag BJ away for the day. Kind of just, just you know, just. <laughs> we live in a selfie obsessed world because that's the attitude and that's the strategy of the enemy to elevate self. We live in a self-building world. We can do things without God. We don't need God. And we live in a self-indulged world. If it feels good, do it. And this is a strategy that goes back to the beginning of time. And not only does the enemy want ourselves elevated, but he wants to lower God at the same time. He wants to make God less than He is. 
He might say things like, God doesn't love you. John 3.16, God loves the whole world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he doesn't love you. He wants to lower God in your eyes. And God is not for you. You see what he's doing to the church down the road? You see what he's doing down the business down the road? He's for them, but he's not for you. If he was for you, you'd be more prosperous. You'd be more blessed. He's, he's not for you. He wants to lower God. Did God really say? Did he really say that about you? Is that promise really for you? Does God really know you by name? This is a strategy of the enemy, which has created the culture in which we live. And it's a worldly way of thinking. Another thing the devil wants to do is say that God wants too much from you. Expects you to live this certain way as these high standards. But what kind of loving God wouldn't call you out on sin when we do the wrong things? Because he loves us and he cares for us. See, this is the biggest lie that the devil gives mankind. And we see it right throughout Scripture. We see it at the beginning of Scripture. We see it in the middle of Scripture. And we see it in the book of Revelation at the end of Scripture. This Babylonian, worldly, cultural thinking. In Genesis chapter 11, we see that there's a new group of people been raised up in the earth after the flood that Noah experienced. And the people were so full of pride, they said, you know what? We're going to build for ourselves a tower that reaches the sky and it's going to be so high that if there's ever a flood again, we will be safe. And they got together and the Bible says, as one man, they set out to do what they set in their heart to do. And God looked at it and thought, my goodness me, they're actually going to do this. And it says in Genesis chapter 11, they said, come, let us build for ourselves. There we go, ourselves. Let's elevate ourselves, a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Not let's repent, put into practice what we learnt from the flood. No, let's make it all about ourselves. God obviously doesn't care about us. He sent a flood. No, we're going to build for ourselves. We're going to look after ourselves. We're going to do it ourselves. We're going to make a name great for ourselves. We're going to make a great tower for ourselves. And God looks down and thinks, my goodness me, they're so committed. They're actually going to do this. And so God intervenes. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, we see that God confuses their language. And this is why we have different languages in the world today. Because before then there was only one language, but God confused their language and all of a sudden they couldn't understand each other. And the building that had been started got abandoned because there was confusion because of the language. And in verse 9 of chapter 11, it says, that is why this place is called Babel or Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. That word Babel is where we get Babylon from and it means confusion. And if you follow another way, other than God's way, it always leads to the same result, confusion. The world at that time lived in a state of confusion. But can I dare say that the world in which we live today lives in a state of confusion? You look at the news more recently. If you follow politics, you don't see clarity. You see confusion. There's a lot of confusion in the world today because that is the result of mankind saying, we will elevate ourselves and we will lower God. We will build for ourselves a great nation. We will make Australia great again. We'll make America great again. We'll make the world great again. We'll do it ourselves. We don't need God. We're going to do it our own way because we are sufficient in and of ourselves. And so this culture 
in which we live today isn't too dissimilar to the culture that we read right throughout Scripture. It's in the beginning of Scripture, it's in the end of Scripture, and again, it's in the middle of Scripture. Isaiah addressed this Babylonian mentality and he prophesied about the demise and the fall of Babylon. Isaiah chapter 47, verse 8 says this, Now then listen, you lovers of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. I will give, uh, sorry, I will never be with a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you in a moment on a single day, loss of children and widowhood. And they will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all of your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. The motto of Babylon or the Babylonian motto would simply be this. I am and there is none beside me. And that's a culture that prevails today. This Babylonian mentality. You see, Babylon was not just a locality. It was a mentality. It was a way of thinking. And the way of thinking is I am and there is none besides me. And King Nebuchadnezzar lived according to this Babylonian mentality. He was a very rich man. King Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful man. Whatever he got wanted was at his disposal. He could get whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. He was such a powerful man. He was the world power of the day. And when he went to Jerusalem and besieged it and took the finest from Israel back to Babylon, it just proved how powerful he was. And with that power came a little thing called pride. You see, he was not only powerful, he was also a prideful man. And in his pride, God had to arrest him and get his attention. And when all was going well, and he was at the top of his game, God gave him a dream. God has an incredible way of getting our attention when we don't want our attention got. And King Nebuchadnezzar has a really powerful dream. And in this dream, there was this tree that was in the middle of the garden and it was so big it reached to the skies. And it had such fruit, it provided fruit and food for the birds of the air and it provided shade for everyone under it. It was a massive tree, powerful tree, almighty tree. And then this angel, this angelic messenger came and cut the tree down. And it goes on to say that this dream perplexed King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, full of myself, and I had a dream that made me afraid. 
up until the dream, he was very content. But this dream changed something in him. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. I mean, he'd just taken on a whole nation and won. That didn't bring terror. He's lying in bed now. He's terrified and afraid. And he asked all of his magicians and dream interpreters to come to see if they could bring some peace as to what the meaning of the dream was. Unfortunately for King Nebuchadnezzar, none of the magicians or dream interpreters could help him. And so then they called this young Hebrew man by the name of Daniel into the courts, into the palace, to see if he could interpret the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel was there and asked to interpret this dream. Now you've got to understand, Daniel was indeed able to interpret the dream. But he was very nervous, even to the point of being very afraid about bringing the interpretation of the dream. Because the interpretation of the dream had consequences. In actual fact, because of what the dream meant, he was actually going to face a death penalty if he was true to the interpretation. But I want you to know, church, there is a time... We need to stand up and we need to speak what God has placed on our heart. You see, when it comes to confrontation, like I'm talking about right now, there's usually two extremes. The first one is that we are unwilling and don't want to put ourselves in that awkward, uncomfortable position. Why? Because I am and there's no one else but me. And we make it about our comfort, not helping. We're not going to get involved. We're not going to make things uncomfortable for me in order to help somebody else. And so there are many people when it comes to confrontation, we're not going to stand up. We're just going to blend in. And then on the other hand, we have this other extreme where people are happy to confront, but they do it out of a wrong motive. They do it out of anger. They do it out of bitterness. And that is not right. I dare say that it's God or the devil that lives in extremes. But God lives in the middle. The devil lives in the extremes. He'll either want you to be unwilling or he'll want you to be uncaring. But what we see according to the Scripture when it comes to confrontation is that we need to be willing, we need to be loving, and we need to be restorative. The purpose of godly confrontation is to bring restoration. And we see Daniel does that in this situation. Let's read... Daniel chapter 4, verse 22. It says, Your Majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and, the, uh, uh, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your Majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched in the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass him by. What I love about Daniel is he was a man that not only stood out, but he stood up. And he stood up at the appropriate time. And he was able to bring confrontation that was both courageous and courteous. We see that firstly, he was willing. 
You, you've got to get what's going on here. He says, uh, Daniel, I need you to interpret my dream. And, and Daniel's got the dream. He's got the interpretation. But he's thinking to himself, you're not going to like what I say. It's kind of like the person that comes up to you and, and, and goes, um, does my breath smell? <sighs> and at that moment, you're put in a really precarious situation because you know that if you say yes, there's going to be ramification. But if you say no, it's not going to help your friend because no one likes anyone with bad breath. Uh, maybe you guys can relate to this one more. When your wife puts on a pair of jeans and she turns around and says, does my bottom look big in this? Be afraid. Be very afraid. You know, this, this is the kind of situation that Daniel is facing here. But he's a man that stood firm and loved well. And in order to stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise, you've first got to be willing to put yourself out there. And he says this to the king. He says, you are that tree. He didn't say, well, it's kind of there are trees, this kind of tree, there's different kinds of trees, and, and it depends what the kind of tree you're talking about. He said, you're that tree. You're that tree, willing. But he was not only willing, he was also loving. Because what we read earlier is he said, Lord, Nebuchadnezzar, if only this dream was about your enemies. If only it was about you, king, taking more ground, but it's actually not. See, see this, this was not a young man that was annoyed with this king who was taking him out of his homeland and into a foreign land. And this was his moment to get back at the king. He didn't have any of that in his heart. He was willing to say, you're the man, but he did it with a love. He said, oh man, if only this dream was about your enemies, but unfortunately, oh king, it's about you. That's a heart of love. So Daniel is confronting the issue because he's willing to, and he's doing it in a loving way, but he's also doing it in a restorative way. And he highlights this fact, that while the tree will be cut down, the stump, get this, will be left in the ground. And where there is a stump that's been left in the ground, it means there's time for it to grow again. And he said, if you humble yourself before the Lord, O King, your kingdom can be even greater than before. Daniel knew what it was to stand up and confront in a willing, loving, restorative way. The story goes on that King Nebuchadnezzar and his pride did indeed lead to his downfall. And everything that Daniel interpreted it about the dream came to pass. In actual fact, the moment Daniel left the place, it started immediately. And King Nebuchadnezzar was stripped of his title, was stripped of his palace, and was thrown out and lived among the wild animals. And dew covered his body, 
and uh, the hair on his back became like feathers in order to protect this. And he had these big long claws like eagles and he just became like a wild animal and a crazy man. He lost everything, including his mind. He lost his sanity. Again, going back to the Tower of Babel, where there's confusion, it's because we choose to do things our own way. And here's King Nebuchadnezzar, once all-powerful, now he's so confused, he's lost his mind. If that's not a picture of the situation in which we live today, I don't know what is. And so there he was living with the animals. But again, to fast-track this whole story, we see that later, King Nebuchadnezzar had a turnaround. And his life and his kingdom was restored. God had cut down the tree, but he left the stump. And the good news for each and every one of us here today, no matter what you are facing, no matter how bad things may be for you right now, there is a God who loves you so much that he's left something in the ground that your life can grow again, that you can have a second chance, that you can have a third chance, that you can rebuild again on a better foundation. It's a time to be replenished and grow again. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, it says, at the end of this time, get this, this is King Nebuchadnezzar's words. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Wow. Confusion goes when we do it God's way, not our way. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble you know, these things that are written in the Word of God are written for our benefit. And sometimes I fear that we read things with rose-coloured glasses and we read things with predetermined understanding instead of letting God speak to us on a daily basis. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man. Yes, he lost it all. But the great thing is there was a turnaround in his life. And there are some things that Nebuchadnezzar learnt that we can learn from. And I just want to highlight three things that he learnt and three things that we can do to survive any ungodly culture that we find ourselves in. We don't want to be those people that just complain about the situation, complain about the ungodly circumstances. If you're in an environment where you're the only Christian, don't complain about that. I want to give you three pieces of advice from the life of Nebuchadnezzar that can help us survive any ungodly situation or culture or circumstance we are facing. Are you ready? The first one is simply this. Number one, we need to acknowledge God. We need to acknowledge God. Daniel chapter 4, verse 26 says, 
The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. When there's an acknowledgement of God is God and we are creation, not the creators, God can do something in our lives. We need to have a, be a people that declare that God's Word is true no matter what culture says. It's true. You know, fads come and fads go. I, I remember many years ago as a teenager doing a first aid course along with my then girlfriend, Kath, because she had to do it for work and she invited me to come and do it. And I did it and I learned all the things that you need to do for basic first aid. But then you have a refresher course. And we missed our first refresher course. And so we found ourselves doing the course probably six years later instead of the uh, three years. But six years later, everything we learned six years ago was different. And that one minute you use butter on burns, then you don't use butter on burns. One minute you use ice, then you don't use ice. Everything changed. And it's really hard to build on the changes. And I want to tell you, there are things that will change in this culture. But we need to be a, a group of people that say, no matter what culture dictates, God's Word is true. Fads come and fads go. Cultures come and cultures go. But the Word of God is worthy of believing and I'm going to hold true to what God says. We've got to acknowledge Him. You see, when, when I give my tithe, you know, I'm not being generous. You know, I, I'm not giving, it doesn't mean the rest is mine. The Bible says that everything I have belongs to God. And we need a culture of people that says, you know what? Everything that I have belongs to God. We had an opportunity just a moment ago to give of our finances, but not as an obligation, but it should come out of a revelation that everything we have is God's. And this is just an opportunity for me to give something back to God because I realise everything belongs to Him. But sometimes we get the culture of this age in our spirit and we just want it all. Told the story before we went through Maccas, you know, some time ago. And, and one of my kids, I won't mention which one, but one of my kids said uh, they wanted some fries and, and they wanted a, a, a happy meal. And so I bought them the happy meal and I chose not to have anything because I didn't fancy anything. The trouble is when you don't fancy any McDonald's, but McDonald's gets in your car and the smell gets in your car, it changes the way you think. And so I thought, you know what, while I didn't want anything, now I couldn't, wouldn't mind a chip. Wouldn't mind at least one fry. And so I thought, you know, surely it's not too much to ask for a fry or two from the person that I'm driving around, from the person that I paid for their meal. And I, so I, I, I asked, not even expecting any pushback. It says, ah, oh, can I have a chip, please? And they said, no. This is what they said. They're mine. I thought, oh, I've got to remind you of a few things. And I said, before you were, I was. <laughs> and I said, we're in my car, driving on the petrol that I bought and you're eating a meal that I paid for. How much of that is really yours? And it came an incredible teaching moment. And it was a challenge to me because we so easily get indoctrinated with the culture that it's mine. I worked hard. God didn't go to work. I did. And we start embracing the culture and we get indoctrinated with the culture without even knowing it. And so it starts with us acknowledging God. How do we 
safeguard ourselves? How do we stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise? We acknowledge God. You know, I love doing what I'm doing. And what I love doing is what I'm doing right now. I love preaching. But I didn't choose this for me. God picked me to do this. And God gifted me to do it. And God picked you to do certain things. And God gifted you to do certain things. And whatever it is that you do and make lots of money doing it, give glory to God. Acknowledge Him. In Corinthians, it says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. It says, What are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given to you? And if all you have is from God, why act as though you have accomplished something on your own? Wow. I asked you to say amen at the beginning of the meeting because of the silence I was expecting at the end of the meeting. And that's all good. If you will acknowledge Him and won't acknowledge yourself, you will survive a compromised culture. Secondly, not only do we need to acknowledge God, but we need to exalt God. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. We need to exalt God. We need to lift up his name. We need to thank God for who he is. You know, last night at the football, there are lots of people exalting and they're exalting men chasing a bag of wind. And there was lifted voices and there were lifted hands and there was shouting and there was fist bumps and there was all that stuff. You do it at a football match and you're a fan. You do it in church and you're a fanatic. See, that's culture dictating to us. And I I say, that's not true. That's not true. The Bible says we should exalt the Lord, our God. The Bible says, shout to the Lord. I don't know about you, but there's no such thing as a silent shout. They say, well, but I I don't shout. That's not me. That's the problem. It's not about you. The Bible says shout to the Lord. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's us lifting our voice, getting outside of our comfort zone and shouting because He is worthy of a shout. It says, clap your hands, all you people. I don't clap. Really? Since when is it about you? The Bible says that we should clap our hands. It says sing. Oh, I don't sing. It's not about you. It doesn't say sing well, thank God, because I don't sing well, but I do sing. Because the Bible doesn't say sing well, it says sing. And we're never more obedient and life is never better than when we are honouring of what the Word of God says. And so we need to be a people that not only acknowledge God, but also exalt Him. Psalm 145 verse 1 says, I will exalt you. My God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. See, life is not all about us. You know, this worship experience we've been able to be a part of. It's because people came much earlier than us. Our musicians get here at 7.30 for a 10 o'clock start so that we can be ushered into the presence of God. Do you know what it is saying? When we rock up after 10 o'clock, I am. And there is none besides me. No regard to those who got here early. 
No regard for those who have worked hard and offered themselves. If we find ourselves rocking up late and not caring anymore, maybe, just maybe, we're being indoctrinated by the Babylon of today when it's all about us. Now, if, you've had, if you got here late today because kids pooed and spewed, that happens. <laughs> that happens. But it shouldn't be every week. It shouldn't be a mentality that says, you know what, I'll get there when I get there. We have kids workers that give of themselves. They, they even wear orange. Most children's workers would say, I don't even like orange, but they do it. Most of our kids workers don't even like wearing orange, but they do it to look after our kids. And we have a check-in time. And to be able to check in their kids five minutes late, 10 minutes late. Sometimes half, we have people coming half an hour late. If you said to me, what does the Babylonian mentality look like? It looks like that. And we have an opportunity to change that. How can we stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise? Let's not become like the culture. Rocking up whenever you want. I know, I know that happens in the world, but we're not of the world. And we're going to show the world a better way. We're going to honour people's time. Young people, if you want a job, just get there, not only on time, but get there early. The boss will be shocked. And just do that every day. Every time you're rostered on, just rock up early. Like, wow, you'll get promoted real quick. But if we embrace the culture, oh, my friends, they came late, so it doesn't really matter. It matters. It matters. We need to acknowledge God. We need to exalt God. Come on, band, come up here. We need to, number three, humble ourselves. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, it says, And those who walk in pride, this is Nebuchadnezzar's revelation, he is able to humble. See, humility is coming. Either you can initiate it or culture will. We either experience humiliation or humility. We're all going to experience it. But in the book of James, the Bible says, humble yourself. That's the best way. We're all going to be humbled, but it's best if we humble ourselves. Because in due time, in due course, God will lift us up. God will exalt us. You see, God doesn't want us to be humbled so He can rub us into the ground. No, He wants us humbled so He can lift us up. I heard it said recently that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not us thinking less of ourselves. I'm nothing. I'm useless. That's not humility. That flies in the face of everything the Bible says about you. The Bible says that you are the pinnacle of His creation. You are the apple of His eye. He loves you. You are chosen. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You don't think less of yourself, but you need to think of yourself less. We need to start thinking of others. And so going back to what I said before, when it comes to when we rock up at church, Maybe, maybe we're not on a roster to serve somewhere. This is not a senior pastor saying, you need to serve. This is a senior pastor saying, God loves you. And the best life you can ever have is by adopting His ways. And His ways are serving others. And if there's anything about this church you love and enjoy, know this, it doesn't just happen. It happens because people willingly give up their time. 
And if you've been blessed for a period of time just by receiving, that's great. But how about we now start turning that around and serving? Because pretty soon, if we don't start serving, what's going to happen? We're going to adopt the wrong spirit and we're going to start seeing all the problems in church. Where serving keeps us humble. And keeping us humble keeps us in the will of God and the ways of God. And we start to see things as God sees them. King Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and God lifted him up. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that awesome? And the great thing is, when we lower ourselves, he never leaves us down. He wants to raise us back up. And no matter what you're facing, no matter what you've been through, there's a stump. At, at, at bare minimum, there's a stump that God wants to water again and bring you life. You see, I don't ever want to become that professional Christian that just rocks up to church on Sunday, preaches or serves or whatever it is that we do, but never actually puts into practice the Word of God. Kath and I were talking about this more recently and saying, what can we do to be more effective in the world in which we live? Because much of my world is church and it's dealing with Christians. And Jesus said, we are in the world, but we're not of it. And I thought, how can I get around people that think differently than me when I work for the church? And, and so for the first time in about 25 years, I, I joined a gym. I've never needed to join a gym because we built a great home gym. But I just wanted to be around people that I could put into practice what I preach every week. Because my question to you is, honestly, when's the last time you spoke to someone about Jesus? When, when's the last time we actually stood firm and loved well in a culture of compromise? Or did we just make it all about us and say, that's just too awkward? It's just... And so I, I, I paid for a membership to place myself in an awkward position to be able to have some conversations. And Kath and I said, we, we want every week to be able to speak to someone about Jesus. I want to turn that every week into every day, but we just want to start somewhere. And I'd love you to join with me in this thought, just every week speaking to someone, looking for opportunity. So I was in the gym the other day and got talking to someone about church and asked me what I did. And, and he said, oh, I, I, I tried church. And I said, oh, how long do you go to church? He said, oh, about six months. And I smiled. One, because God has given me the opportunity that I joined the gym for. Because I didn't need the gym for the weights. I've got that at home. This was the reason I joined the gym. And I looked at this guy and I said, if you had a young man come to you and he said, I want to build some muscles and you wrote him a program and told him what to do. And after six months, I use that term, six months. I said, after six months, he said, ah, oh, it's not working and left the gym. What would you say to him? And he smiled. He said, I'd probably say you haven't been there long enough. And I thought, oh, I feel like Daniel. <laughs> I feel like I'm standing firm, but I'm loving well. And all of us can do it. And you know what it did for me? I came alive. And it's not a story that happened back in 1973. It's something that happened recently. And I want to be able to bring story after story every week of how God is using me because I realize as the leader, so the people.
And I realize there's much wrong with this church. There's things we need to change. But I think we focus on that too often because we're not doing what we should be doing. I promise if we could all get into a gym or into our schools, universities, our workplaces, start having some conversations that we haven't had for years, I think our dialogue would change. And I think the things that will still be problems, that still exist, won't be as problematic because we're doing what Jesus has asked us to do. Will you stand with me this morning? Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 